I'm Christine Russo, and you're listening to What Just Happened on MarketScale. Hey, everyone. We welcome Matt Wurst to What Just Happened. Matt is the co-founder of Mint. Mint simplifies Web3. Mint works with the likes of of the NBA, the NFL, Mars Wrigley, and more. Hi, Christine. Thanks for having me. Mint is is a platform that mints tokens on the blockchain, but you guys have backed into it and made it for the regular guy where they don't need a wallet. They don't need necessarily to have tokenization. Um, And I just want to briefly touch on the meaning of tokenization and the purpose for blockchain, something to the purpose of owning something on the blockchain. And that is, and this is like a statement slash question, stamping forever ownership. Like you are in the forever land as the owner of this particular thing. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. The blockchain is an open, verifiable, decentralized platform. And those are a lot of buzzwords, but really what it means is that we no longer have to rely on centralized, media or data platforms or financial institutions or even governments to make decisions that are in our collective best interest because we know that most of the time they're operating in theirs so by freeing ourselves for transactions for interaction for engagement to take place in uh, again a more open verifiable platform makes scamming actually a lot harder it makes fraud a lot harder now. Those things still exist in every channel and there will always be a way. But by giving creators and artists, brands, developers, the end consumer, an opportunity to take greater control over their own destiny in digital, it is a lot more empowering. Uh, it, It frees us up. It's unlocking and unleashing creativity in ways that we haven't seen before. But the core principle of the blockchain is for individual ownership to be proven and verifiable by anyone. So in other words, I'm sitting on the curb in my neighborhood and I've got this great baseball card and um, Tommy next to me, when I'm not looking, takes it. And now I don't even have it anymore. He's kind of swiped it from me when I wasn't looking and I'm nine years old. So had that happened, had, should that happen in, in, on the blockchain, it would show that I was the original owner. Yeah, that's right. There are a number of different use cases for blockchain technology that collectibles and proofs or certificates of authenticity are uh, a very clear and obvious one that we're beginning to see become more foundational for other use cases. And those include uh, membership, loyalty and rewards, right? The provenance of ownership is important, but ticketing, token gating access to content or community, uh, commerce experiences, and then building for long-term scalable relationships is really interesting. But at the end of the day, proof of ownership is irrefutable. It's just a matter of now simplifying even further 
removing some of those clunky, confusing terms or tools that exist in early stages of all periods of technological advancement. Why hasn't the written word been included in this cycle of forever ownership? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we're starting to see that happen. There are newsletter sites and even media publications that are locking their content in. So we will see more of that happen. But I think the reason that this progression has taken the path that it has is that if we look at the um, initial interest in this, Web3 was about building systems and all these connecting uh, infrastructural modules that artists could easily tap into. So it started first with crypto as fungible tokens and then art dealers, art creators. Now, articles which are mass produced and distributed typically through uh, paywall modules and mechanisms or even uh, even free newsletters, uh, we're beginning to see those types of uh, monetization models applied, but they're further behind because historically people did not want to pay to read written word content online. We've been trained to expect it as a free service, and I don't know how fair that is, but a lot of the reasons why some of the legacy media institutions are challenged or failing is because they weren't able to monetize the even incredible journalism or content, but the written word, uh, we train people to expect it for free. Now that's going to have to shift or change. Otherwise, we are going to become a, uh, a a very visually led ecosystem. Well, I would argue we're already there. And writers are artists as well. And um, music is basically free. You can stream it like for free. So the parallels are, um, there, there are a lot of parallels, but um, yet there aren't because there is a, um, I don't know, not a lack of respect, but a lack of point of view that the written word is creative art as much so as music and visual art. Well, we're going to see the next phase of innovation happening with digital tokens that doesn't necessarily replace or send art and collectibles to the corner. But the first phase of NFT or, or NFT 1.0 saw some missteps, right? Individual adoption of blockchain and crypto has accelerated over the last two years. But now we're starting to see strategies put in place things are slowing down. And what was missing from all of that was a almost like a marketing 101, right? So I think big brands, whether they are music and publishing networks or CPG companies or travel and hospitality brands, I actually think they're going to lead the next phase. And because they are adept at omni-channel content creation for social and for their owned and operated websites, I think those creators are going to be adapting to some of these new tools. And we're already seeing powerful models for companies to use that go beyond just collectability. So creating those tokens as a means of access and experience, a reward for participating, 
but also a almost like a proof of membership, a key to get in to see new content. So the content itself doesn't necessarily need to be tokenized for this model to continue to progress, as long as the positive feedback loop of earn, engage, earn, engage continues to grow, uh, the positive feedback loop is going to continue to push adoption forward no matter what. I want to take, I want to stay on this topic and I want to push a little further and it's this. So collectability, nice. Utility, better. Fact. Web3, nice. AI, better. We're, we're here where there's much more engagement in AI right now than what's going on in collectability and art. It had its first go of it, a little bit of a reset. And then in comes AI and swoops all the attention and is like, here's the thing. This is what it's all about right now. So I'm looking at it from like, well, hmm, will these two actually, will they cross over? And AI is 100% word driven. And Web3 is 100% not word driven. So words are, the word part of it is much more, I mean, much, much more utilized, the utility piece of it. So I think we're going to see a lot less engagement in it because right now everyone's just kind of like spending a lot of their time trying to figure out how how to use AI to build their own platform and create and create. It's become the utilization tool, like a mega 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 tool that eventually that could end up also on Web three. Um, but it it kind of stole the thunder as far as like new exciting. Um, format to explore. Well, they're, already, they're already working yeah. together in some ways, and you're seeing mm -hmm. real creators and strategists who are able to leverage both. A lot of people look at AI as replacing very basic functions, and it may at a free version, but AI is boring. It's actually not creating anything that is spectacular or creative. And what I'm more looking forward to is not seeing the floor rise, but actually seeing the ceiling rise. There are incredible AI visual artists and even writers who are leveraging some of the outputs to create new things. And the art and the science of AI is actually in the input, not the output. So I am, I'm a big believer that the best that we have seen from AI is actually not written word yet. It is actually visual. It is vi a video. We're going to see feature length films created entirely by AI on a $5,000 budget in a matter of years. We're seeing newsrooms at publications already leveraging mid-journey and spatial to improve the quality of their art. So I think we're going to see a combination of things, but from a an everyday user perspective, improving the quality of their work to make them more efficient or more creative in other ways is going to be exciting. It's already happening, but I think also as some of these free tools become more crowded, and the paywall to enter, right? ChatGPT is adding a subscription model. I think that'll start to differentiate a lot of things very quickly because the everyday usage will be still somewhat banal, but the really high-end work that AI can deliver based on really smart, innovative use cases, we're barely scratching the surface of that yet. And bringing Web3 into that proving ownership is going to be critical. We're seeing lawsuits now 
because some of these companies may have stolen millions of images from creators and there's no proof that that happened. But if all of that imagery was documented on chain, then it would be irrefutable and royalties and proof of ownership would make this entire conversation a moot point. Okay, so let's get to that. Um, I do love the point where um, the creator, this is fascinating and I think this is what you said and my brain is like, wow, um, the creator is defined less about the their output and more about their input because you're now using a, a tool to do the output, but the only way that tool can, can produce something amazing is by the creator putting something in that drives a great output. That's a huge shift. Huge. We call it, we call it promptology, say? right? Promptology means figuring out the right inputs, the right guides, the right styles. And some of it is linguistic. Some of it is vocabulary, but some of it is stylistic as well. Understanding and having studied different types of genres of visual creativity or even written style. I could put into chat GPT, you know, write a cover letter for a job in the tone of Malcolm Gladwell. You know, like you, you can input those guides and those inputs in a way that will yield very different results. The way that I'm creating visually right now, we could put in and start from the same idea, put in same concepts, but the way that we input that could yield very, very different output. Uh, and that's, I think that's the fun part. We're learning and the machines are learning. Yes, it's a very, very unique and interesting point. And, I, and I'm, 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 I'm appreciative of that. Let's now talk about um, the lawsuits, create creativity, ownership of, let's use just photos for now, okay? Um, so why are, maybe this is happening, but why is there not a rush? Why isn't every, I don't know, museum, a private owner, artist rushing to put their content on the blockchain? Or are they? Is that happening? Because that's a utility to me. Yeah, a lot of them are. Um, and that's that was one of the earlier phases of blockchain. It's why Christie's and Sotheby's are really, really innovative and far ahead in their use of both blockchain to sell digital art, but also document the process of auction. There are a number of museums who are deep into the uh, the minting of their assets on the blockchain, but proof of ownership is different than the actual art itself. You can mint many different variations of the Mona Lisa, but there's still only one Mona Lisa. So legacy art has one model, new digital art has another model for how this is being documented. But the annals of history and the gigabytes or terabytes or whatever is higher than terabytes of data that already exists digitally do need to be documented on chain somewhere. But until very recently, the blockchains themselves were prohibitive. The energy costs alone were challenging, but now it's a resource challenge. So it's part education. Not everyone knows that this should be done. And that's part of what we need to continue to align on. Part of it is a consistency of the different terminology and tools available. And then that third piece of it is resource driven. So who is going to lead the charge? What are the best ways to do that? And we're still very early, 
but because there are so many different pieces of our collective creator economy and ecosystem, I think we'll see a race to the middle where different origins will be leveraging different tools and we'll see some consolidation. We'll see some alliances and partnerships taking place. But until there is one provable use case that others can follow, and I don't think that exists yet, a lot of trial and error still needs to happen. So if we work backwards from these lawsuits you referenced, what you're saying is you can't, like, it's just whoever has the better position, like there's actually no way to protect your asset? Well, if you are a creator now, there is certainly a way to do anything from like this point forward. Everything that you create can be fingerprinted on the blockchain. That's not an issue. It's more the historical legacy of content and how some of the visual tools scraped millions of images over time to build a database that as you put in to mid-journey some prompts, all of those inputs that were created beforehand as a foundational pillar of the technology, it's hard to really differentiate. If you take a million images and turn out something new, do those million images have some legal barrier or, or legal standing that can be protected as a barrier in a court of law? I don't know. We're just beginning to figure that out. There's a, an NYU law professor, Michael Kasdan, who is beginning to pontificate on some of this as an analyst. And then there are going to be court cases, and I'm sure they will work their way through the system. But the technology is going to improve a lot more rapidly than the courts can determine. So buckle up. This will be a fun part of this journey. I don't think it's going to be answered or settled anytime soon, but there's a lot of money in it. So there will be a lot of interested parties following this side of it as well. Okay, so let's get into Mint now. Um talk about mint what what it does what you do outside of what we can see on the website and how you have worked with nba nfl anheuser-busch etc mint is a white label platform whose entire purpose and mission has been to simplify the experience that big established brands can have in terms of onboarding into web3 some of the earlier technologies and tools that put items on the blockchain, whether they were cryptocurrency or one of one pieces of art, were built on blockchains that required a lot of energy and required a lot of steps. So our mission to simplify that process meant removing the barriers to entry. That meant partnering with a Shopify to make the sale and distribution of tokens simple. It required partnering with blockchains that didn't require a lot of energy, that were one-click minting solutions. And those were the types of simplification challenges that we wanted to tackle and approach very early on so that brands could mint and distribute accessibly and inclusively as opposed to very rare, limited, scarce models that some of the earlier brands were thinking about. So companies like the NBA and the NFL 
and Mars Wrigley and Anheuser-Busch, they are mainstream consumer brands. They want to get as many people engaging with their assets as possible. So by developing a tool that doesn't require crypto, you could buy with a credit card, or doesn't even require a purchase at all, meant the removal of those barriers to bring consumers in, to bring the developers in, to bring the brands in, and bring millions of new people onto the blockchain in ways that may not have been possible before. Mint was among the first, if not the first, to do this as a white label solution. It doesn't require a centralized marketplace like an open sea. Brands can own and operate this within their own ecosystem on their website. So that's what made it different. That's what makes it new. But the next phase of this, as the technology becomes easier and more mainstream, is to determine what that value exchange is. What are brands and creators uh, offering to their consumer and what do they want in return? So token gating, having that proof of ownership that unlocks access to different experiences is really where the entire industry is going, but it's where Mint has been leading the charge a lot earlier than others. We were not looking at NFTs as a cash grab very early on. We wanted this to be a brand engagement direct to consumer experience. Okay. Um, and um, a lot's gone on in this space. Are you still seeing a lot of interest uh, coming towards you? I mean, you, you mentioned you were early, so there are other people doing it. Like what's the general temperature in that space right now? Yeah, we're seeing a shift. It's providing now a new set of models and frameworks that are still leveraging the same technology, non-fungible tokens, but we're able to go beyond just the purely collectible affinity-based model. So now what we're seeing is loyalty programs and ticketing for real-life events, the bringing together of digital and physical items in a way that uh, brands, creators can leverage these tokens as keys to accessing experiences as a reward for participation. They can be bought and sold, they can be claimed in real life, they can be gifted. But the whole idea of the NFT as a cultural artifact, as a collectible, is expanding. It is affinity, it is loyalty, but they are increasingly a part of our identity. The art, the visual matters less, but the business model of nearly every proposed Web3 idea at this point and moving forward is gonna entail distributing tokens to the consumer, to the fan, as an incentive to get them to use and improve this platform that they've created to make the value of those tokens better. It doesn't have to be financial value, but it could be experiential value, it doesn't matter. But aligning the incentives is where strategies and creative thinkers really need to dig in and start pushing the envelope for the next generation of this tool. We're seeing a lot of metaverse experiences and activations in virtual and augmented worlds, but the reality is they are all still very disconnected. They are uh, not all on chain. Some of them are very beautiful and visually engaging, but they may not align the incentives either. So the building block of metaverse ecosystems and experiences will be tokens. NFTs are going to drive all currency inside metaverse worlds for years to come. But metaverse creative is like step five. 
the tokenization of the consumer experience has to be steps one, two, three, and four before we get there. Interesting. Yes. Okay. So we're not talking about the Roblox stuff, which is calling itself Web3 and Metaverse. And arguably that's not the case. So we're talking about the tokenization on the chain of some iteration of experience, key, pass, uh, ownership, fidgetal, non-fidgetal. Um, but that's the, that's the, as you said, the building block, steps one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. So with Mint, do people call into Mint and go, we want to do something, help us? Or is that where point symmetry comes in? Does point symmetry do the consultative part and then Mint does the actual execution? Yeah, they're, they're different entities. Um, point symmetry is a consultancy that I created probably 15 years ago now that has either been a primary or a peripheral part of my uh, my professional career uh, really ever since. It started as a way to first work with startups and new companies as a side project and has become a way to work with and across a number of different companies, gaining visibility into new insights and trends and technologies and positioning myself as Matt to make an impact with that information, possibly at an established entity or potentially even an emerging company Mint for me was um, a try before I buy or date before I marry experience where I was working as a consultant with the initial founders, what was supposed to be a four or six week brand strategy market, go to market idea. And I stayed on for you know two years because I believed in the power and potential of Web3. So for me, point symmetry sometimes open up, opens up those opportunities. And if and when it makes sense for me to take on a full-time role, I can. But really, separating point symmetry and Mint is important because as Mint, Mint is working with large and established brands to figure out what the technology solution can be. But more often than not now, agencies and consultancies are coming to Mint saying, can we use the technology for this? Or we have an idea, we'd like to do that. And I think those strategists and consultants are going to be the tip of the spear for the next phase of Web 2.5, right? It's the Web 2.5 is a term I use to describe that bleeding edge, but that blending of current digital strategies with those Web 3 ideas and, and the decentralized web. So all of us are players in the ecosystem. I happen to be a connector with strategy and technology but they all are going to need to work together to really push this idea of ownership, removing control from centralized players um, in a way that other phases of technology and marketing and creativity and innovation have for decades or even centuries. Are you still at Mint? I have stepped away from Mint as a full-time employee. I am still a co-founder. I have uh, an advisory equity role, and I am rooting for Mint every day, but I am not tied to Mint every day as a full-time employee, no. So you spend your time working on point symmetry now? I, I do, yeah. Okay. There are some interesting things that point symmetry is working on now that are in the Web3 space and pushing forward on to help innovate that go beyond just technical. Uh, I have 
a project that I've been helping build at a very early stage that will be a media and publishing platform that brings together AI creativity, as well as covering the disruptors in the Web3 and AI and technology space, thinking about it as almost like a wired for Web3 and AI, but using investigative journalism and some of these new tools to actually investigate the heroes and the villains in this space. So that's been really interesting to help just as a strategist about what the brand can be and should be and how they approach the space in a different way. Understood. Understood. Well, we like to keep it real tight and um, we covered a lot. And um, love to hear from different voices in the space because a lot of retailers, brands and consumer related businesses are still trying to make sense of it. I think simplification is a key component. Sounds like Mint is one of the main resources to do that. And I think we'll probably start to see more and more and more and already have. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people lead with questions and that's okay. It's, it's exploratory. It's still in the early innings. It is. This is um, a very much test and learn period, but there are some who wanted to learn before they test and that's okay too. But I think, again, the next phase of innovation and inspiration and imagination is going to come from that information. Very, uh, very poetic, but it's creative in a way because the data and the insights that we're able to leverage will go into understanding audiences and benefits and the expectations that they have and where and how to reach them in new ways. And that's not fundamentally a different blueprint than what marketers and creators understand and have been building with. Mm -hmm. It's just a new set of tools that will make our output yield potentially more innovative outcomes. And that's what's exciting to me. It needs to be accessible, it needs to be inclusive, and it needs to be creative. And as long as we're guided by those core philosophical tenets, then we're not going to lose we're all gonna to continue to win in our own ways and make them personal and relatable uh, and ideally on chain more visible. What's your background? Like, where did you come? What is, um, you, uh, were you in retail at some point? I'm just checking. I've uh, never been in retail. I've been, uh, I was an early days builder of web 1.0 websites, okay. working with the early days of mba.com then mm -hmm. launched a startup that was one of the first social media platforms that was quickly acquired and mm -hmm. then moved on to build one of the first if not the first social media practices at an agency and scaled that from one person on a, a more legacy agency model to literally thousands of people at a acquired agency holding company model started mm -hmm. an agency that was acquired and then as a consultant able to move in and out during mm -hmm. those periods in between found and discovered Web3, stayed with Mint for several years, mm -hmm. and now I'm looking to expand where technology and creativity and marketing can drive things forward. So never in retail, other than working with some of the largest retail brands on the planet yeah. as yeah. an agency partner. Mm -hmm. So B2B, mm -hmm. B2C, D2C. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Well, I love your perspective, Matt. Thank you, Christine. It was great chatting with you. It was I great. look forward to more great content from you in the future as well. Oh, well, thanks. I'm hard at work at that. <laughs> <laughs>